Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Michael Morine podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. Our guest today is a Quinnipiac professor, Professor Kulam Lipa. She uh, taught my anatomy and physiology class and is one of my uh, favorite professors at the university. So really <laughs> lucky and happy to have her here with me today to uh, talk for a little bit. Professor CL grew up in New York, mainly Long Island. She went to SUNY at Buffalo for her occupational therapy degree and lived and worked in New York and Atlanta for a little bit of time as an OT, and then moved to Connecticut where she got her master's in health sciences in PA at Quinnipiac College. At the time it was Quinnipiac College, now it's a university, I believe since 2009. And then after graduation, she has worked as a general surgical PA in Hartford and began teaching right away as an adjunct. After that, worked in a few years as um, transitioning into full-time teaching in the emergency department and one day a week now for about 15 years you worked in a private practice doing orthopedics mm -hmm. uh, up until the pandemic and as of right now you are doing full-time teaching you so, got yeah, it how you doing thanks, <laughs> for, thanks for coming on yeah thank you so much for inviting me michael i'm really happy to be here actually you are very welcome <laughs> so to start i'm curious about your kind of college experience going from you know, you were an OT and then mm -hmm. I'm assuming some things happened, mm -hmm. something changed and you decided to go down the PA route. So whatever you want to spill the beans with that, um, kind of what happened, what, what, what went on that made you change? Well, you know, um, I think it's going to be a common theme. You know, um, I started with one thought of what I wanted to be and I changed that thought three or four different times before. I landed on what works for me, but the best way to know that story um, with clarity is to understand that I was a first gen um, student and nobody in my house or family or neighborhood really went to college. It was like really unusual. And my, but my best friend did, which was what made me even interested in going, you know? And um, so when, when I found myself first starting college, honestly, I just randomly chose a major and it wasn't OT, it wasn't PA, it was, you ready for this? Biochemistry. Wow. <laughs> I know, really wow. <laughs> and um, anybody who knows me knows that even just to say chemistry gets me choked up because it, it that was a really hard subject for me. Um, but at the time, it was, you know, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to be the person in my family that goes to school and I'm going to be a doctor. I, I think that a lot of people can connect with that thought. Um, you, your whole life, you see yourself as a doctor and I'm going to go do that. Um, but honestly, it didn't take long for me to figure out that was not me at all. Gotcha. Being a doctor was not what I really wanted to be. And studying biochemistry was not at all what I wanted to study. Um, and then it was kind of fate. Um, I met some people and this is actually a really good lesson for people. Talk to people around you. I met some, you know, first year students and we started talking about what they were doing. And this 
small group of, of women who I became friends with, they were in the OT program or that was what they're, what they planned to do. And I thought that's kind of an interesting, you know, idea. Tell me about that. And, um, it sounded really interesting and, and it wasn't just them. You know, you ask everybody, you, you say, all right, so, and what are you doing? And then there were people in business and I was like, oh, that's probably not me either. Um, but OT sounded good to me. That sounded like caring for people, giving them the ability to achieve on their own, loved it, you know, and uh, there's some science, but it was really applied stuff and it really made sense to me. And so I, applied to the PA program, I mean, excuse me, I applied to the OT program. And that's how I kind of became an OT major. And honestly, through the whole course of my um, undergraduate, I thought this is it, this, this works, this is what I want to be. I, I really thought I hit on the exact thing for me to be um, in terms of a career. And it wasn't until I got out into the world of working with patients that I realized that for me, I, I needed something slightly different, you know? That's probably the best way of, of putting it. There's so many people who go through that, I think. Yeah. I mean, and, and for me, I'm glad that I finished my OT degree and got out in the world and had clinical experience and then kind of thought, hmm, maybe this isn't where I should end up permanently. Um, but I'm equally happy when I work with students who have that epiphany early in their career enough to change their degree before they finish it. It's scary. It is. It, it can be so Tremendously scary. scary. It, really, it was scary for me. I went out in the world. I was a successful OT. I worked in uh, Burke Rehab with adults. Then I moved to Georgia. We, I worked in pediatrics. I, I mean, I think I was pretty okay what I did. I um, had a really huge client base, worked with colleagues who I loved. And then I was making this decision to make a change. It's so scary. Change is so scary. But, um, but really the reason that I changed from, from OT to medicine was I wanted to do something I love OT and the idea of rehab medication, med medicine. And I love the idea of helping people to regain independence. You're gonna love it, Michael. It's like, it, it, it's so amazing to help somebody to feel more like themselves after an illness that made them feel completely unlike themselves. Um, so that, that is really rewarding. But I wanted to get be in before that. You know, I kind of wanted to, maybe help them prevent having that type of injury. And also, um, <laughs> this is gonna sound ridiculous, but I wanted to do surgery. Yeah. I love anatomy, I wanted to do surgery. And so, right. you know, guess what? OTs don't do surgery. Yeah, they don't, unfortunately. It's not something that they do. <laughs> and you know, the closest that it comes, I would say the rehab, the rehab um, professions, the closest that um, they come to surgery is like wound management. And I was struggling to even be able to find positions, you know, that allowed you to do that. Because I thought, well, that kind of fits with what I want to do. Maybe that's what I'll do. Um, but yeah, that was kind of the progression from OT to PA, somewhat condensed. Gotcha. Gotcha. I already have a ton of questions just off that okay. little instance. Um, I hope I have answers. Yeah. I mean, as a PA, I know there's some limitations to 
you know, obviously a physician has, I'll say more responsibilities, but the PA shares a ton of those mm. and surgery was interesting to you as a PA, how like in depth of surgery do you get to, like, are you the main person doing surgery or is there a physician or like how much do you actually get to do? It's a very good question. And I think that, that this is an area. So first of all, let me tell you, when I was making this transition, it was a million years ago, probably before you were born and people didn't quite know what PAs were. And so that question is a really good one because at the time it meant something slightly different than it does now. As a matter of fact, when you introduce yourself as a PA to a, to a um, potential um, patient at the time, they'd be like, wait, whoa, whoa, get the doctor in here. And now of course that doesn't exist. But one of the um, one of the things that you said that's really important to point out is that a PA always is supervised by a physician. And that doesn't mean that the supervision happens right there, holding hands, kumbaya, make, you know, it means that you have to work with a, a physician who trusts your judgment and who has trained you in a manner in which she or he is comfortable with you caring for their patients and then collaborate whenever that's necessary. Now in the OR, collaboration is always necessary. Um, I was not, how cool, you know, would it have been for me to take 27 months of school and then go to the OR and try to operate on somebody? Um, probably not that cool. Um, so I was always first, at, at best, I was always something called the first assist. So in, in most operations, there's the surgeon and then the person across from them is the, called the first assist. And that's the second set of hands. Some big operations have third assists, you know? Um, and that's separate from the, the surgical tech or nurse in the room. That having been said, the more you work with a physician, surgeons including, the more comfortable they get with your skill set, the more as a PA you get to do. Um, gotcha. And I was, you know, I was, I was getting to do the cool stuff I wanted to do. Yeah. It seems like some of it's, so it's a little bit up to the discretion of the physician. What the Absolutely. And, and the skill set of the PA and the beauty of the, um, the beauty of this career is that if you find the right collaborators and that's super key. And by the way, that's key for anybody who's watching this, whether you are a PA or a, you know, a communications major, you're going to be a, a teacher, find the right collaborators, find first of all, a mentor. Um, doesn't have to be an official mentor, just somebody who you look at you go i want to be kind of like that and then find people you collaborate with in a really positive way and if you're not finding them where you are go somewhere else you know and so that's true of being a pa you need to be with a group of practitioners not just mds pts ot's speech therapists everybody needs to be working together and if that's not gelling it needs to be fixed yeah you know can you give me like a rundown of like what is because I've had a few surgeries. I've been in operating rooms, but obviously I was under um, anesthesia and stuff. Like, what is the typical makeup of like an operating room? I don't actually know like who's in there doing what. Yeah, it's a party. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'm joking, but not. I mean, it's kind of sometimes the, at, the atmosphere is really varied. That's like it's the first thing. Um, the atmosphere is incredibly varied, and the atmosphere is um, the tone of the atmosphere is set by the surgeon. There's no question about that. Um, and that has to be respected, you know, um, but that having been said, the makeup really um, can vary depending on the type of surgery. So um, a small, you know, a minor operation and, and no operation is minor to the person having it, but there are operations where you don't need as many hands involved. So something I would say a minor operation would be like a knee scope, 
having like a, a scope put into needs, take a look at the cartilage, right? Um, we're gonna call that minor. So that type of operation would be the anesthesiologist, obviously. So that can be an MD, that could be a nurse, um, an anesthesia assistant. There's like different versions of the anesthetist. Um, so those are the people we call the people behind the curtain. Um, the patient doesn't really get to see them that much except for when the curtain goes down and before the operation and then after. They, they care for the patient. Really, they care for the health of the patient through the entire operation. Then there's the surgeon, the primary surgeon, um, which is an attending, um, meaning that's somebody who's been long done with their training. They have their own practice. You know, these, these are men and women who are well-established. And then there's assistance. Now, those are the things that can change. Um, some surgeons primarily use PAs. Um, some surgeons work in a hospital that's um, a learning institution. That's where you're gonna see residents. And you know, these are high level residents that are learning. And sometimes I operated a lot with residents as well. You know, there would be the attending me and a resident. Um, but at very minimum, there's the, the surgeon and then the assistant. Could be a PA, could be a resident. And then there's um, a person who manages the tools and that could be a surgical tech or a surgical nurse. Um, both of those people are trained to do that. And then there is a person who runs the room, who basically is like the producer of the movie that's happening in that room. And that's um, the, the nurse in charge of that room. Um, so that's usually an RN. That's minimum. That's minimum. I mean, but by the time you get to like knee replacements or big belly surgeries or reconstruction, like um, breast reconstruction, you've got far more um, assistance. You might have perfusionists who are managing the blood that like in a cardiac surgery, um, you radiologists. Uh, that's common. I forgot to mention that, but it is pretty common to have a radiologist come in and snap a film during a surgery. Um, somebody from past might need to come and run and get a piece of tissue. Um, so it's, it varies, but that's kind of the basic scheme. Gotcha. gotcha. Oh, hey, I forgot to mention the most important person. Shame on me. Do you know who the most imp important person is? You have to tell me. <laughs> I don't know. The patient. Oh, yeah. You need one of them in there. <laughs> you mean that? <laughs> Shame on me for not mentioning them. They're the whole reason you're there. Yeah. So quickly, obviously, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you mentally prepare before, like, is it one of those things where each time you kind of have to go through like a, a thing to prepare yourself mentally for what you're about to do? Or is it kind of just become second nature? Is it a mix of both? A little bit of both. I mean, um, when I, so with general surgery, the, the uh, type of case you get is so varied and it's general. And so at the time um, when I did that, I was working with physicians who had um, you know, multiple subspecialties. So it was like this gigantic surgical group and there were these subspecialties within it. So it could be a day that I was working with a head and neck surgery or a belly surgeon, a colorectal or, you know, so, um, so what you did on a daily basis changed, um, but also there was the bread and butter and what became um, really a common procedure and you would always feel, you know, much more prepared for those, obviously. Um, but 
I always did prepare before I went into the VOR. The, the I mean, it was never something that I would, you know, skip into, you know, singing. Right. I mean, I well, maybe I did because I had a really good, I loved it. <laughs> but I never took my role lightly. Um, even, a, um, you know, cholecystectomy, which is a, you know, a gallbladder removal, which I did hundreds. I helped on hundreds of those. Really, after a while, you could feel like you could write, you know, your grocery list while you're doing that, or you know, maybe knit something. No, not really. But there's the, you know, you, even those, there's enough variation that you have to get your head. Forget the grocery list. Don't even think about what you're having for dinner. Get in there and help that patient to feel better. So, um, so even though you know there was familiarity, there was always a little bit of prep, and then there might be. You know, a bunch of the surgeons I worked with worked with um, oncology. And so suddenly now you might be removing a tumor from, you know, a pancreas. Um, and that you don't know what you're getting into. You, you, you can do imaging like crazy and you open up and here, this is the anatomist talking. You open it up and you're like, what am I looking at? So, you know, you get your head in the right space. My heart was always in the right space because I was very, very um, into caring for my patient before I always met them before. And then I would follow them after, obviously. And you got to get your hands in the right place because you can't be shaken and dropping stuff, you know. Um, got to get your emotions in check. Um, and so there's always a little bit of prep. There really is. Yeah, sounds like it. So much fun. I mean, yeah. it's oh, you know what it reminds me of? And I'm going to pretend like I even know what this feels like. <laughs> it reminds me because I'm not an athlete, but so I'm going to pretend okay. I know what an athlete goes through. But for a minute, I'm just going to pretend. Um, but I think that when people are athletes, they have to, even though their sport is so part of who they are, every game they do this prep, right? They get in the head right. They get their body right. They get their heart in it. They maybe collaborate with their team. It's kind of the same thing. I, yeah, 100%. I think I've never been on a team. Does that sound like what a team does? Oh, a million percent. I um, <laughs> I was a three sport athlete in high school. I, okay. I played football, basketball, and I ran track. And yeah. before every football game, we had a prayer we did. Yeah, you know, we all knew it by heart. Um, it's still in my room at home, like up on the wall. Um, you know, we'd all say it, go crazy, and then run out on the field and stuff and start the games. So yeah, it, you know, it's almost like kind of a ritual in some sense to kind of get your yeah. head in the right space. It is. It really is, and I, yeah. I guess that's part of it. I mean, and so for for me, I had to. I might my rit ritual might change depending on the surgeon I was working with. There was I. I worked with a lot of surgeons, right? And again, mm -hmm. that set the tone of the room. Is this the guy who's going to play country music and you know be lighthearted? Is this the one that's going to use words that I never want to repeat outside of this? You know, I mean, there's various, right. right? That's people. And so I I I always made sure it was keeping with that's being a PA actually you can't always just do things the way you, you want to you have to make decisions that are medically sound but you have to be respectful of the particular surgeon or MD that you're working with at the time um and and also it's probably again like the like the sports you know you do all that stuff to kind of get ready but once you get in the game it feels very, you know, oh, I, this is this is part of my nature. I do this all the time, you know. And then maybe something sprouts up that you didn't expect and you have to get back into the thought process and be like, okay, so this is an unexpected finding. There's a stone in this duct that I didn't think that was going to happen. Let's, you know, refocus. Um, that's where flexibility comes in. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, there's I feel like there's so much effort put in to make the, the surgeries as orderly and as possible, but there's always, you know, the potential for some chaos to just kind of leak in. You have to be ready to kind of handle it. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Just expect it. Just expect right. some chaos because then, you know, and it doesn't ha it happens what? One out of however 20 times you're in there, but if you expect it, the 19 times it doesn't happen, you come out and you celebrate. Um, yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Um, I want to backtrack. And this is all back to the first thing you said, but I thought it was interesting how, um, you know, you went down into healthcare related things, but you were unsure of what you wanted to do. But you just mm -hmm. went to college and that was kind of, you know, what was interesting to you. Was that like a similar thing that a lot of people were doing back then? Because I know in my generation in college nowadays, like there's a ton of pressure to kind of already have that stuff figured out. And especially when it comes to healthcare fields, you know, Quinnipiac specifically has a lot of the direct entry ones. Like if you know you want to be a PT, well, here you go. You can be a direct entry. So you're like 18 years old saying, yeah, I want to do this already. That's but, incredible. Yeah. Me. Was it like the same back then or it was kind of more like your situation? It was, it was, there was more, um, you know, so I ready, here goes the full disclosure. I went to college in the mid eighties. Oh, she's so old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, and because it was a SUNY school, um, there, which is, you know, which is at the time, and I think still is, um, a less expensive option. Um, it, I think it was much more common for people to be first gen or, you know, exploratory, not knowing what you're doing students. Um, I did not know anybody really who went in with a clear idea of what they were gonna do. And everybody was totally fine with that. You know, here's some funny news. Um, and cause I know, cause I have two daughters, as you know, um, one is 20 and one is 18. So it's not that long ago that I went through the high school to college thing, right? Judy's about to start next year uh, in the fall. And you guys and them started this planning freshman year in high school, right? Yes. I'm getting information from the guidance counselor. I would love to meet with you. Let's talk about the plans. And I'm like, holy Moses, this kid is 14. Um, <laughs> it's amazing to me. I never met a guidance counselor. I never met a college counselor. Nobody talked to me about college in my, in, and that was, and I wow. went to a very huge school in New York, Sachem High School. It had like 1800, it was a ridiculously huge school. So it wasn't an out of the, you know, way place that it just wasn't done. Wow. If, you know, if you went, you kind of figured, and it might be, again, this might've just been my experience, but if you went to college, if you came from my town and you went to college, um, you kind of picked locally where you wanted to go. Like, where could you see yourself living, you know? And then, and then you thought, well, you know, look at all the majors. Is there maybe something there that you might like at some point? Um, you never, you didn't declare a major at all. I don't know how people do it now. Yeah. How did you know? I, I mean, I want to say I, I kind of didn't in a lot of ways. It was just yeah. one of those things where, I mean, there's more of a financial commitment with college nowadays. Mm -hmm. And then there are all these direct entry programs where, you know, if you do know what you want to do, it like works out for you better. Yeah. But I knew I really liked the human body. I knew I really liked helping people. And 
I also, there's also a big societal pressure of, holy cow, it's my junior year of high school and I still don't know where I want to go to school and what I want to study. Let For me you just guys, pick, that's true. Yeah, let me yeah. just pick something and mm -hmm. something that I know I at least am interested in and see where it kind of takes me. Um, and I think it's worked out for me. I, I haven't wanted to change my path. Um, although my freshman year of college, I did also take on a pre-med track for a little bit because I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that, but I ended You'd up dropping terrific, that. I mean, yeah. I could see you. You'd be a terrific MD, but frankly, Thanks. you are, you, I couldn't, I can't pick a student that is more well-suited to be a physical therapist. You know, with your athletic background, and you're interested in helping people. I think you chose right, but boy, is that that's partially luck. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I think it is a, a lot of luck. I mean, Quinnipiac was the first school I toured, and I was a sophomore. Like, like I started super early. Mm -hmm. Um, and like it sounds crazy, a sophomore touring colleges and stuff. It's really but not. <laughs> I I started early. I don't know. I'm an only child. My parents wanted to get me exposed to it as soon as possible, and. I wasn't even interested in PT. I think my major at the time, like I listed as like computer science or something. Oh, and um, <laughs> then like, you know, a year later, I was interested in PT and then Quinnipiac happened to have that accelerated program and everything. And mm -hmm. I knew I loved the school, like the the feel of it. So it just kind of worked out and it's it's been working out. I'm really happy with my choice. Um, yeah, you should be. It's a great fit. And but yeah. what you're describing is a little bit similar. I mean, Obviously, you started much earlier, you had your parents working, but the whole idea that you pick the place where you could visualize yourself first, you know, like yeah. I, you know, I visit this place, I could see myself here, and then maybe I'll find, you know, and, and let me make sure there's a variety of options, and, and, you know, I'll find something eventually versus what happens now, like I said, you know, you start freshman year, depending on where you go to school, the conversation starts right away, freshman year, high school, I'm talking about. Yeah. The conversation starts right away. What do you want to be? And shame on me, I have to say, when I meet a kid, what do I ask them? I mean, when I meet anybody from the age of 14 on, what do I ask them? Oh, how exciting. You're thinking about college? What are you going to study? I'm feeding into the machine of craziness. Everyone part, does it. A part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I think everyone does that. I mean, the amount of times I was asked that from just my entire time in high school, like, yeah. It was, that was everyone's thing. Like, oh, how you been? Haven't seen you in a couple months, years mm -hmm. or whatever. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Totally. <laughs> Just jump straight to that. And it's such a ridiculous question. And, but I really want to know, like, I have to tell you when I ask that, I'm not saying, I'm not saying you better know what you want to do with the rest of your life. Even though that it might be read that way. What I'm saying is I'm really interested in knowing what your interests are. Exactly. You know, really, but maybe that's what, how I should phrase it from now on because there's less pressure um, saying things like that. Um, but also, the, when I went to college, the presumption was people probably, made, 50% maybe would go to college and the other wouldn't. Now the presumption is 100% of graduates from high school should go to college. And to make life even more difficult, 90% of those people should be definitive about what they're going to be when they grow up. It's it's unreasonable. Yes. But I think you bring up a really good point, and that is I paid $64 a credit when I went to college. And so if I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, it might have cost me a couple of hundred dollars extra, right? right. But you guys, the cost of education is so prohibitive to exploration now, the pressure is on you to make the right decision 
Yes. And you, you described it earlier as a scary process for yourself switching around, like just back then, you know, today it's really scary for a lot of young people. Um, just the amount of financial commitment put into Mm -hmm. it. It's such a big decision. I'm, I'm honestly surprised people are going to college in the rates they are. I'm not saying you know anything for or against college, but it's just surprising to me that it's still such a, a popular thing to go. And I mean, freshman year, like I saw a ton of that with the with the PT program. There was a lot of students who came in and like it just wasn't what they wanted to do. It wasn't what they you know wanted to do for the rest, rest of their life, or they weren't ready for college. Um, you know, I think you see a lot of that with just the freshman year, you know, it's usually when people transfer out of schools and whatnot, and they realize this isn't for them. Um, like, did you did you see people um, who who left school 100% or who said, I'm not quite sure, I'm gonna look for a less expensive option or who changed majors, or maybe it was like a little bit of everything? You know, it was a little bit of everything. Yeah. There were some students who just went to college, developed pretty bad habits, or they didn't really, you know, they just weren't ready for it. And mm-hmm. they ended yeah. up going home, doing something locally. Um, there were a lot of people who would, you know, they would be AT, DPT, they would drop the AT, or they would be DPT, they would just drop the PT and just do health sciences because they weren't sure if they wanted to be PT anymore. Um, but I don't think there was, I, I don't know many people who switched out of it. Um, my roommate did, he wants to be a PA actually now, so he's, he did, he's making some switches, um, but it was generally... You know, people who are changing like majors, they were majoring in something other than a health science field, typically. Yes. You know, they were kind of like communications or business and they went to like history or something and bounced around in those fields. You know, it's funny, everything you're saying um, rings true to me because as a a faculty, I'm an academic advisor, but I only advise the biology students because that's where I live, where my little teaching part lives. Um, But I often, oh my gosh, I cannot tell you the number of times that people will send students to me who aren't in biology, who just like need some guidance. And I talk to so many PT students, PTAT, um, who go through that, who are like, I, I, I committed to this and I like this part. Both what you said, drop the AT, continue the PT. And then prior to that, maybe drop the PT, continue the AT. Although unfortunately that's not an option anymore. Yeah. Um, but um, but I feel like that's not, doesn't feel that risky to me, but it feels so risky to the people making the decisions yeah. versus somebody who comes in and I've had this too, somebody who comes in, they're, they're, you know, let's say biology and they go through a year, they're really struggling with the sciences and now they decide business. I, I think business is what I should have probably always done. That feels riskier to students, you know, because it's a, it's a huge change. Why did they pick what they picked? Because they knew they could get a job. Business maybe feels a little bit more ambiguous. They don't know what they're going to do. Um, they're disappointing their parents. That's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. There's pressure from parents. Lots. I had none. I, I mean, I had, I, my parents had no experience. Right. So the pressure that I had was, go to not 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 really actually once i expressed an interest in going to school it wasn't pressure it was pride um and and honestly i think in some ways thank god my parents were so uninvolved you know it's funny because (laughs) who would ever say that you know? know um but it permitted me to make the change because even though 
you know, I changed from OT to PA. You now know I changed from bi from biochemistry to OT. And that change didn't come without some loss. I lost time. So it took me longer to complete my undergraduate degree. My parents didn't really know how long it was supposed to take. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, you know, no, this is normal for OT. Everybody takes five years, which is true now, <laughs> but it yeah. wasn't that good. Now you've got these kids whose parents are taking them to counselors to find out what they're supposed to be freshman, sophomore year. And yay, parents love the involved parent who have engaged in the process of saying, my son, the PT, they know in their head, they know what that looks like. And, you know, four years later, their son says, yikes. Right. I'm not sure about this PT thing, you know, or whatever, fill in the blank with something else. Yeah. As a tour guide at, at Quinnipiac, that's something I, I can like pick up on almost like naturally now, like when a parent's like making the decisions for the child mm -hmm. rather than the child making decisions for themselves. It's really obvious. Um, it's, it's super obvious actually, because, you know, I sit at the front desk, the families come in, I say, hi, how you doing? Welcome to Quinnipiac. And, you know, if the mom or dad does all the talking, like I say, like, what's your first and last name? I ask the student every time. And sometimes the parent will like answer for the student. Oh, and... I hope I don't do that. Do you think <laughs> I might do that? I might be that parent. <laughs> Maybe. Well, now you, you can be aware of it. But, I'm um, aware. I hope yeah. I'm not. I try not to Probably be. Probably not. I, I think about it when, when we have encounters. I try yeah. really hard not it's to. Just a, it's a small thing I picked up on. And then usually yeah. when I, and then I also will give tours and usually I give tours to families that I also checked in and always the quietest kids who don't speak, they don't ask questions. They're clearly like in a weird, they're just in a weird mindset, but they're kind of like, holy cow, I'm out of college. I don't know if this is what mm -hmm. I want to do. Like you can just feel it like kind of, it's like an aurora around them. Yeah, um, no, it is. There's and, an energy. Yeah, and I the parents, totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, the parents are the ones asking everything, everything, everything. And it's making the kid feel more and more kind of pressured, like, holy cow, whatever. Um, but then I have these students who walk in. They're like, their parents aren't even, like, they're behind them. And they're just like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm here for a college tour. Um, and, like, you know, they are they start asking me questions, like, right at the gate. And I'm just, like, at the front desk, like, trying to sign them in still. Um, and then on tour, you know, they're asking me this and that, and like, they're super excited right. and the parents are like, not as involved with the whole thing. Um, yeah, so, yeah. some of that is probably personality, but, but 100%. I think some of it is reflective of exactly what we're talking about this, this, the parental vision of what their kid is going to become versus the student vision. I mean, that is, that's a whole open up that Pandora's box, right? Right. The student's vision. And by the way, a lot of times they start, I'm telling you stuff you already know, but a lot of times the students and the parents start college with that exact same vision. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. And once the student gets, you know, free from always being told that they're going to be a doctor or experiences, you know, other has um, conversations with other people or experiences other courses, they go, oh, you know, I never thought about journalism, but that looks like really cool. Like I'm a people person. I want to collect data, but not in a science-y way. Um, that's a hard conversation to have with your parents. Extremely. It is. I it's, I've worked with so many students to try to help, you know, and that's hard for me. I want to help my students. And so I'm, I've worked with so many students to try to figure out how to navigate that. But the thing is, I feel the parental side of it too. 
So right. I, yeah. I, yeah. On I both sides. Get it. You know, I mean, it's like, I, I mean, I, I, if my daughters changed their majors, it, that wouldn't freak me out, but I have time. This is what I do. So I absolutely know there's, they're going to be fine. But if, you know, if this isn't where you are every day, that could feel so scary to a parent. Yeah. I, I, I imagine. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, obviously I'm not a parent, but I, from what my parents have told me, like whenever they kind of go down that, that rabbit hole of like mm-hmm. wanting to push me down a certain route and like push me into being a certain way that I might not necessarily want to be. Um, they always say to me, like, you know, it's just like a natural thing. They just want their kid to be like perfect and right. parents want their kids to be perfect, but everyone has a different definition of what perfection is. And I think that's just where like some of the troubles arise, especially when and this is more of like a psychological philosophical thing, but when you craft an image in your head of like what someone's life can look like and what it's going to look like, and then out of nowhere, like the kid is suddenly saying, no, I want to be somewhere over here actually. Mm-hmm. then like that kind of destroys the image you crafted of like how things are going to play out. Mm-hmm. You kind of lose the predict- predictability and everything that you that's expected. And that's then you it. To, and as a parent, to, if yeah. you can't predict that your kid is going to be okay, that's the scariest thing that you have ever experienced. But you just said some interesting stuff. Um, the idea that you have the idea of what a, a perfect, um, I don't know, a perfect ch- child is or, or even a perfect experience. And, you know, I, I, I think that I might have figured out how to deal with that a little bit. I have to self-talk a lot to remind myself these things. But I realize now in, you know, where I am in my life, that what that actually means, what it means, you know, it's, this is the question somebody posed to, to be successful for me has changed completely. And my perspective is to be successful, you should be happy. I know you don't entirely agree with that, but that's because you're more about serving others. But I tell you that you could serve others if you're happier. I'm telling you. So if you are happy, safe and kind, you're successful. That's it. That's it. So if you envision, so what I did, what I do consciously is I do like a check-in. I have two, we have two daughters. Are Mary and Judy happy, safe, and kind? If those answers are yes, we are still successful. Gotcha. I, I mean, I agree with that. I know uh, in my video. I know, but I get what you're saying too. I, the problem is, Michael, when I was your age, I was definitely more in your perspective and it's okay. And I, I, I get what you're saying too. It is very, part of that makes it so broad that serving others and being um, like me personally, I, I need more to feel successful. I need to be productive. Like that's to me, productive outside of my own needs, that's success. Um, but, but that makes me happy, safe and kind. So it's a byproduct. It's like um, a byproduct. It is. It is. Right. Yeah. That's why that's what my that's what I mean when I say the ultimate goal isn't to be happy. Yes. Yeah. To do something that provides you with that. So like you're not aiming to be happy, you're aiming to do something that provides you with happiness. That's you're what totally I right. yeah. yeah. Um so I agree hundred percent. Um I mean what else did I say in that video? It was Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, just remember me, hearing that and I'm like, oh, he needs to be, ha- he's happy. You're always happy. It's oh, unhappy. I am happy. It's like a funny thing because what you don't realize is by achieving those things, you're happy, you know, like right. that. Yeah. Right. So. Right. Yeah. It's for me, like when I was younger, you know, when you're growing up, 
and I remember weird things, but I remember like in like a preschool class, like a teacher asking like, what is, what do you define as like a, a successful life? And everyone was answering, you know, you have a nice house, a family, like the white picket fence, type sure. of thing, you know, the dog, drive a decent car. You like what you do for a living. Everyone was saying those things. And as I've gotten older, I've started to, started to not really care as much about what I own or like what like my, my material stuff is. I've started to really value more so the people I'm around, my family, my friends, and like how much I'm laughing and like not thinking about other things besides what's going on in the present moment. That's kind of what defines like a, a wealthy, you know, there's a difference between like wealth, there's, you know, material wealth and then like your just life wealth that you feel inside. So to me, that's kind of the biggest thing. Like you said, you know, that, that's all goes into it. Well, but look at you, Mr. Maturity. I mean, that's like uh, what you just said is a mouthful of maturity. It's it's something Thanks. that took me 50 years to get to. Well, probably I was there earlier than 50 years, but I mean, you know, and and part of it is where you came from. So to be fair, my, you know, I, my background, you, you know, my parents didn't go to college. We were, you know, blue collar, sometimes didn't have stuff that we needed. I never suffered, trust me, my, you know, yeah. but, but I remember growing up, I did think, I did think that having a house that I paid for, you know, and maybe a car that would be cool, that would define success. And I was kind of thinking that would, my parents would think that was success. Um, but now I'm definitely 100% with you, but you know, like it's, or wealth really is what I mean, wealth. And right. now I'm 100% with you. What What's wealth to me is smiling for no good reason, you know, like, um, spending time with my kids, teaching. I actually really love spending time with students. That that brings me, you know, kind of a kind of enrichment that you can't get from money. I mean, you get money too, which is kind of nice. <laughs> of course it is, yeah. That's my um, product. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, that's, and I think that's why I enjoy doing this, these types of like podcast things so much. And I, I enjoy talking with people. Um, to me, when I like reflect on it, I think it's just cause maybe, I guess the word is maturity. Like when I, it's hard, it, it is hard for me, honestly, to have conversations like this with people my age. Oh, yeah, they I wanna, imagine. They want to talk about things that I don't want to say are like less valuable, but it's just not as interesting to me. You know, I'm more, I'm more like to talk about like life and like other, like deeper stuff than just like social media and, you know, <laughs> whose house are you going to on Friday night? Um, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, totally. So, I mean, you're, yeah. but that's because you your level uh your personal growth is 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 ahead of your same age peers you know most of them and and it, and it is not a dig at your same age peers they're exactly yeah, where they're supposed to be they're where i was for sure i mean and actually your same age peers are probably more mature than i was at that time yeah. um but you your your level of um you know being in touch with with things that are a much more mature level, it's higher. It's just higher than your same age peers. So I imagine that's true. That's why you got to invite us old fogies to your- <laughs> Well, thank you for that. And have conversations. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I, that's what I'm kind of trying to get at. Like, it's weird. I, I don't not enjoy talking with people my age, but typically yeah. I the conversations I enjoy are with older people. Yeah. Um, that's just what I've noticed. Well, you know what, if, you, if that's how you feel, you should go into geriatrics. There is no more rewarding group of people to talk to. Anybody over the age of 80, these are the coolest cats on the planet. I mean, the, the stories they could tell you about the things that they've lived through, 
Unbelievable. It's funny you mention that because like that's probably, at least in my mind, one of the last routes I wanted to go down. But mm-hmm. it makes see, sense. You'll see though. I I felt well. And my first job as an OT was in adult rehab in Berk Berk Rehab, and it was basically it was stroke and spinal cord. So it was two ends of the spectrum. Spinal cord were young people, men mostly, young men, um, because they took risks and got a spinal cord injury. And stroke were old, mostly men again. And I really thought I'm not gonna like the stroke. I'm not, I'm not that I'm not gonna like it, but it's not gonna feel natural. I loved those people. I loved their wives coming. I loved them seeing everything about them, what they wore, how they talked, and you know, all of that stuff. Um, and I've grown even more, you know, and then of course I went to peds. So I ran as fast as I could. As much as I'm touting the older folks, I ran as fast as I could because I just wanted to be with kids. That seemed like a natural place for me. Um, obviously in orthopedics, where I spent the last 15 years, um, a good percentage of my patients, uh, probably 75% are, are would be considered older or elderly. Um, love it. Absolutely love it. Love to hear what they say. Love to hear like, um, you know, here in Connecticut, we have, you know, um, I, I practiced in Waterbury. And so there's these immigrant populations. I had a lot of first degree immigrant, love their stories, everything. You grow to appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely need to open my doors to those avenues, uh, especially geriatrics, because that's one I haven't really thought too much about. But um, you mentioned teaching a little bit and like your love for it and whatnot. So I'm just, you know, curious, what's what is what is it about teaching that, that you love? Like, what's your favorite part? What is it about um, it that, you know, it's what you're doing? So it's a good question. Um, so the first time I took so my primary teaching is anatomy. At the undergraduate level, I teach anatomy and physiology, but really my love is anatomy. Um, and it's very interesting that I can say that phrase now because my first um, exposure to gross anatomy was in OT school. Um, back in the day, as an undergrad, we used to dissect donors. Um, and I the that was hard for me, really hard. In fact, I wish I thought to find it, I would have found it and showed it to you on my camera. I still have my notebook and on the front of the notebook, it says, I strongly hate gross anatomy. <laughs> I didn't really strongly hate it, but it was such a challenge. And so when I got out of that and I successfully got out of it, I thought, you know, it would be cool. This is a scary, it's like organic. People fear it, you know, it's like yeah. calculus. Another thing I can't say without breaking out into hives. Um, <laughs> people fear it. And I thought it would be really cool to try to make it um, less scary. You know, I mean, I got through it. I was scared out of my mind. And then I got through it again in PA school and I was not scared at all. And then after that, it was very clear that that's what I needed to do. I needed to teach anatomy um, at some point, at some level. I actually started teaching anatomy as a student. My last year in PA school, they used to have TAs in the gross anatomy lab for the PAs. We don't anymore. And so I went and just, you know, kind of went in and helped. And the next year I did it as a paid paid um, lab assistant. And then over time just took over the course. Um, so I think that was kind of what mostly led me to teaching. What, what I love about it on a daily basis now is kind of the same thing. It's, it's really fun to help somebody 
achieve something they don't think they can. People just don't yeah. think they can do this, you know? Right. Um, and plus, I love anatomy, the visual nature of the human body, which is why I love surgery, you know? And, and why that piece of OT really worked for me. If I'm working, if I'm making, you know, an orthotic for a hand, I could visualize what was in that hand and what I was trying to do with that orthotic. It, all, it made sense. Um, and there's so many other things. You would be a good teacher. Um, Thank you. I actually am really yeah. interested in teaching. Yeah, you point. would be good. I mean, you know, there's so many reasons why it's good for you too. Um, because I have no choice. Obviously, as a teacher, you have to stay abreast of new stuff, right? Um, plus, I teach clinical anatomy. So I have to stay atop, on top of the clinical aspect that maybe I would not have as much in all various, you know, not just orthopedics, but everything. Um and I learned so much from my students, so much. These clever people who formulate these questions that I never thought of, you know, we see, well, how would that, gee, I never, I don't know, let's look it up and figure it out. So there's just, you know, it's, it's just really enlivening. Yeah, yeah, I liked a lot and I resonated a lot with what you said about how you went through gross anatomy, it was scary, it was hard, and you wanted to make it you know, you could, we wanted to be, you wanted to make it easier and kind of be like living proof that you can get through it. And yeah, you know, that's a big, that's over, a part of it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I resonate a lot with that just with what I've gone through in my life. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I, I broke both my heel bones um, in high school. I only, because I know the only reason I know is because of your, um the, the YouTube channel. But yeah. The video you that's saw. That's the only reason I know. I didn't know it when, when we knew each other, at, um when you were a student of mine. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I keep it like low key, obviously, like not really anymore. I, I, I put it out on the internet and stuff, but it's not something I like talk about like crazy. But anyways, when I, you know, broke both my heels, um, I have extremely limited range of motion in my right foot. I have arthritis mm -hmm. in my right foot. My left foot moves pretty good, all things considered. Um, no real issues with my left foot, but I still have metal in my left foot from it. Um, I've had three surgeries on them. And my whole mindset that kind of got me through it was, you know, the mental things I was feeling and the physical things I was feeling, I knew that they were unique to me, but they weren't, I wasn't the first person to ever experience something like it. And so my mindset was, you know, I could, my life could just like fall apart after this, or I can make something of my life that then people can find admirable. And then also I could be the living proof that you can get dealt a really terrible hand and still, you know, come out the other side as a, a, a functioning person who, you know, is doing good stuff out in the world. So that's actually really amazing. That that's flipping the script, right? That's um, uh, in psychology. I, I think I'm not. I'm definitely not. You know, like totally um, sure, but it's some. I think that's called reframing. When you take um, something that could be such a negative experience and you reframe it as a positive. Um, and that is such a useful skill, not only for you, but for everybody you encounter who now you can say, I mean, you don't even have to say it, you, but in your mind, you could say, I don't know what you're going through. And so because of that, I'm going to be a little bit more compassionate or I'm going to uh, give you a break when you snap at me, you know, or I'm going to help you work through that even though it seems like a minor problem. Um, 
that's a great reframing. I can't believe Thanks. it. You know, you, I never noticed any change in the way you ambulate at all. So whatever you've learned how to do, you've compensated beautifully. Thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. I wonder what, I wonder your hip and your knee must be doing something crazy to compensate for the, for the ankle I'm thinking. Yeah. My hips and my knees, I can already tell they're going to give me some trouble in a couple of years, but I'm doing great. And that's one of the things that I, I think is crazy about what happened to me is that I, I, and this isn't toot my own horn, but I think I move better than like 90% of people my age. <laughs> and <laughs> I, that's true. And yeah, like as far as like strength you goes, more fit. See, that's totally true. That is so true. But I think that's a motivational thing when people see yeah. me and, you know, whatever, I can do X, Y, Z things. And I do have limitations, you know, like when my friends go to like a water park or something, I really can't go. Like my feet would not hold up, Bummer. but it's like, there's so many other things I could do with them. You know, like yeah. I can play pick up basketball for an hour. My feet. Oh, wow. Just, my, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I can like shoot. I can't really like do some crazy like stuff that I used to be able to do. But um, I can actually still dunk a basketball, which is pretty crazy because I jump off my left leg and my left leg isn't, my left foot isn't as bad. So I'm also tall, so it helps a ton. But that anyways, yeah, like the whole <laughs> but thing. But I just wanted to let you know, in terms of the water park, you're not missing much. They're pretty gross. Yeah, I was just an example that came to mind. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's just one of those things where, you know, if I can do it, you can do it too. And like, it's pretty clear that you can definitely do it too if I can do it given the restrictions I have so I think it's just motivational and then on top of that when I was like going through physical therapy I never had a PT who went through something similar and that doesn't take away from you know their their knowledge and how they helped me but I think me as a PT if, you know if I have a kid who wheels in in a wheelchair like me into my clinic and he broke both his heels or she broke both her heels and I look her in the eyes and she sees like hopefully, you know, a muscular fit dude who knows what he's doing. And I say to them, Hey, like, you're going to be all right. I did the exact same thing. And like, you know, I think that would just tremendously help them. No with their mental, mental battle with it all. And I think in some ways that goes to something I said earlier is like, if you, you should find somebody who you want to be like, like you can actually be the person that your clients slash patients want to be like, and they can see you as the model because you've really been through that, you know? And also, Michael, you said something that's really important. Um, and that is like other people have gone through this too. And actually that's true of everything. Yeah. If you are in the middle of an experience that you don't think you can make it through, you gotta, you gotta know that people have made it through, you know? And they're no more powerful than you are. Um, right. Just just tap into the energy and, and get through it, you know? Um, and, and, and to be fair, obviously not everybody can do that. There's a resource problem sometimes and people don't have people, you know, supportive around them, but um, it's a really, it's a, it's an important point. There's very little that you're going to go through. Everybody has a unique experience and you did say that, but there's very little that you're going to go through that somebody hasn't gone through something pretty similar and made it. Exactly. That's why whenever someone says like, oh, like I would be this or I want to be a doctor, but I don't think I can. It's like someone else did it. You can do it. I too. say that all the yeah. time. I say that I have my kids because bi it's biology. I have a lot of pre-med students and, you know, and I'm not I'm also not going to float your boat. I'm not going to set you up for failure. And, you know, we got to see what your skill set is. And you can't 
um, I, I've used this phrase so often, you have to find the intersection between, you know, your desire and your ability. And sometimes it doesn't intersect, you know, like yeah. I desire to be growing up. I desired to be a Broadway dancer. That's what I wanted to be. My skill set, it didn't intersect. Didn't happen, you know. But anyway, um, I, but I probably could have done it because somebody's done it before. It would have just taken more energy. And I just wasn't willing to do that, you know. Um, so same thing with that, being a doctor. I, when kids are like, I want to be a doctor. I don't think I can. Well, you know, like people do it. Normal, <laughs> average human beings who can't navigate other things in life have done that. So, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, and I, I think there is, like you mentioned, um, a component to it where I think everyone's born with different like abilities and things they can thrive in. Uh, athletics is like a really easy example. You know, there's a certain type of build that you can have that's performs better in swimming typically compared to like long distance running. Long distance running, you want to have longer legs and a smaller torso, and then swimming, you want to have a really long torso with really mm -hmm. long arms, and like so the elite of the elite they always fall into those similar kind of body types. Not to say like, you know, if you have a really long torso and long arms, you can still be a really good long distance runner, but are you going to be gold medal Olympic level? Probably not. So, you know, there is like the, those kind of components where just who you are, the way you were born, the way you, the environment you grew up in and stuff like that, like it can definitely play a role. But I also think, and, and I think kind of adding on to that is, you know, let's go with a short torso, long leg, whatever. If you're built for something, and you can succeed, but if you are not entirely built for it, in other words, if your desire and your skill set don't intersect, doesn't mean again, yeah, you're right. You you probably you may not get to the Olympic gold, but you might. But what you have to do is make a decision about how much energy do you want to put into it. Like, do you want that to be your entire existence? Maybe you can then. Maybe if you did only that, you know. And so that's part of it too. Conscious decision on, you know. Do I, and actually it's funny that that comes up because when I started looking at med at wanting to do surgery, I thought now maybe I will go to med school. Consciousness and and by the way, my my desire and my skill set did intersect. I had I had the great, you know, the grades and the ability to do it. And but my desire to put energy into it or my desire to do um, have a balanced life helped me to make the decision to become a PA. Yeah, that's probably the, a similar reason why I stopped doing pre-med myself mm. was, and you might disagree with this, but I, in my head, I, I personally felt I could be one of, if not the best physical therapists, but I don't know if I could be one of, if not the best doctors. I definitely do not agree with that. <laughs> However, because you're just, you are not, do you see what you just said? Listeners, did you just hear that? I know. It sounds very um, self-deteriorating. I know. Right. You just said other people have done it. Why can't, you know, like, yeah, that's so self-deteriorating. I, I agree. But, I, if, I, if other people have done it, I know I could become a doctor. I just felt me personally with what I, my, I'm interested in and, you know, my hobbies, like, and weightlifting stuff falls into being a doctor for sure. But I think a little bit more with the PT, I just felt, you know, I would, because I would love and enjoy being a PT more, I would be able to become. That's different. That's your con. See, yeah, that's I, what it's you and I just it. said the same thing, right? You yeah. and I just said the same thing. If you, you could do it, you could have been the best MD out there on the planet. Everybody thinks you're a God. Stop with the eyeballs. 
stop with the eyeball. You could have, but that would have been all you did. You wouldn't be doing podcasts. You wouldn't be working out, having friendships, not going exactly. to water parks. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's 100% true, but I guess that's where the conscious decision of where, where am I going to be the best of what I want to be, but also be able to do all these other things, you know? Um, but I think that I, I still think even if you were the best MD out on the planet, you are so much more well-suited to be a PT. You're going to be helping people to independently mobilize their life in the right direction. Um, you're going to be knowing your patients. Yeah. Uh, which is not something that always happens to MDs, you know? Yeah. I mean, 10% of my life I've been inside of like a PT clinic. So it's um, <laughs> just being an athlete. And then it's going to be like, probably it's going to be more like 90% soon since you're going to be practicing yeah. PT clinic. Right. Hope exactly. like it there. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I work in a clinic and everything, by the time I leave earth, I'll probably almost like 40% of my life will be spent in some sort of PT environment, but <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Switching gears a little bit here. Time management. I'd like to talk to you about time management. You know, first of all, time management when you're in school, we'll start there. So PA, you're in PA school, Quinnipiac College. What does is, what is your day look like? What is the time management like? Yeah, so that, I mean, you know, it's so funny that you picked that because I would say that if there was a way for us to blood test students for time management skills, we would have, we would be able to tell who's going to struggle in school and who isn't. That is like the number one skill for success in, in literally any field. Um, and, I, and I could speak to, to um, PA because it's where I spent most of my time, obviously, but it's true for OT and, and I work with students in PT, nursing, pre-med. So it really is necessary for everybody. And I, and this is, may sound overbearing, but my method and the method that I suggest to people is literally managing practically all of your time. And, and may sound like that's too restrictive, but when I say literally managing all of your time, what I'm saying is you have a calendar that you write down your things you absolutely cannot miss, classes, work, whatever. You have periods of time that are dedicated study periods. And then you also have periods of time that are dedicated, I'm not studying during this time frame. You know, I'm gonna do something different, you know? So you don't have to say what you're doing necessarily in those restful times but um everything should be scheduled and now i don't know that this is necessarily true in every major because i think sometimes expectations are different and schedules are different but in the graduate world that you are just entering into and that my kids are in now um, in the pa world it's a hundred percent necessary i tell them to do that on the first week that we meet many don't and then they have trouble in their first sets of exams. And when we meet again, they say, you know what? I probably should have, I should have done that. You know, I should have done that. So um, time management is not something, it's, it's not a skill that always comes naturally to people, but you could develop it so easily, um, really. Yeah. What do you think of, of this? I, for me personally, I've always had pretty bad time management. I was always putting things off, not to the last minute, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't, you know, 
I would rather be doing something else than getting a homework assignment done. So I would usually push things off. And then at, at college, I really needed to improve my time management, obviously, just because it's more independent and accelerated PT program plus doing other stuff. But that's the thing is the more things I got involved with that school, the more my time management improved. Oh, so yeah. like when I was only doing PT, I would get back from class and I would just be like, all right, I can play video games for a couple of hours, sit down, do that. And then all of a sudden it's 10 p.m. I pushed it off and then I have like 20 chemistry questions I have to do for 11 a.m. the next day. And, you know, then I'd be stressed out and whatnot. But then when I joined a fraternity and got involved with like the leadership side of it and then, you know, working on campus and whatnot, all these things started filling up my calendar and it started making me more like, oh, I need to like actually use my days and my time more efficiently. And people would think it's like the other way around. Like the more free time you have, the better your time management would be. But for me personally, the more like responsibility I had and the more things that I had that was like non-negotiable, Mm-hmm. you know, I ended up actually improving my time management. I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, I mean, just look at it this way. If you have, if during a work week that I'm working every day, outside of work, I get tons of stuff done. On my way home, I pick this up, I get the prescriptions, I take the dog for a walk, I cook every night, I, whatever, laundry's done, et cetera. I have a week off, I'm literally getting nothing done. I don't even know how to manage my time. It's like I've too much. So no, I really think that for a lot of people, it's not true of everybody, but I think for a lot of people, having that non-negotiable time is important. So like, if for some reason, your classes are not um, uh, as demanding, and then that's not really what I mean. Your class time is not that big. Like maybe you don't have to go to class for eight hours a day. PA students do, sometimes more than that. Um, but maybe you don't. Um, if you don't, and you're having trouble getting the little work done outside of that, get a part-time job. Work, you know, like uh, set yourself up a workout schedule that you that that you consider non-negotiable, you know? um join something it's a little bit harder for graduate students you know obviously there's less of that but um and i also think this is actually important for me in terms of time management because it's really important to also allow yourself time that's pseudo managed right so it's time that you can do stuff that you want to i personally feel like i need to earn that time right so i'm not allowed to do whatever that is that I enjoy unless I've done the other things on my time management list for that day, or maybe eight out of 10 of them, you know, something like that. So I think that's a mechanism that also helps that kind of reward system. Um, I really, really love Netflix. I don't, but I mean, I do, but a lot of kids, you know, somebody who wants to watch hours and hours of Netflix, sure, you can do that. But to do it, you have to finish out, you know, your endocrine physiology, work, that kind of thing. Um, so it's it 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 there takes uh, a level of commitment, but it's something that pays off hugely. Time management. Yes. Yeah, two things with that is I like how you mentioned working out and exercising. Ooh. For me, that's been a huge thing. A lot of friends and people that I've talked to have said that that's been a really difficult thing is managing staying in shape and like doing physical things, and also staying on top of schoolwork, like 
people are very quick to put aside their their health, honestly, to yeah. get stuff done. And then on top of that, when they put aside their health, then you know other procrastinating things will come in. So like they lose the time they're going to work out, and then they didn't even get the work done anyways. So they just kind of lost it all. Um, but my my thing I always say is like it's more of the mindset. Like you know, you can make working out a non-negotiable. Like you put it in and your it schedule. Should be. It should right. be non-negotiable. It should be non-negotiable. Yeah. Like oh. it's in here. Like I have my workout time set when I'm in, in semester in the summer, it's kind of more lenient, but during the semester, like if someone needs to meet with me, I'm not free during this time. Cause I'm working yeah. out. Like yep. that's just how I do it. And it's, you know, it's, it's scheduled in there. So I know I'm going at these times and I know I'm going to be there and it helps, helps tremendously. And then on top of that, like it's just more enjoyable when it's all just kind of structured and it's just there. It's not like chaotic. You just know like, okay, I have this stuff to do. For these two hours, though, I'm just going to go, forget about mm -hmm. it, and just focus on this. And it helps you out because then you can come back and refocus. You got, you feel good. You got something done that was good for you. It's, it's a win-win. You are so preaching to the converted, my friend. That Everything you're saying <laughs> makes sense to me. Like, you can't believe. And I have ev my whole, you can't see because it's hard to see on here, but I have everything scheduled, including workout. W-O is my workout. I do it weekly. So, you know, here's the other thing about time management. People get overwhelmed because it's like, oh my God, I have 15 weeks. How can I manage? No, you have to have a long view. It's very important to have a long view. And then you need, you know, the medium view, which is really kind of like a week. And then you have your daily. That's where your biggest control comes in. You know, every day you look at what you thought you planned to do and you tweak it if you need to before the day starts, just before you get into it, or even maybe as you get into it. But, but, there's things that you can't change. And and I, for me, the workout is is one I really try hard not to. Um, very little would impact that. Um, to me, it's it's kind of like taking a pill. It, it, I would never not take a pill if I needed it, right? Um, yeah. I need to work out. It, it gets my head straight and that's, you know, I'm gonna do that. And just as you mentioned, if I have my whole day scheduled, I don't feel bad about the hour and 20 minutes that I'm doing that. Cause I know I have time on both sides to get the other stuff done, you know? Right, right. Alrighty, what would you say are the most important skills someone going into healthcare should invest time and maybe even money into developing? Um, so that's pretty hard. So it's there's very little that money can buy that will help you, but I do have one suggestion in terms of money. Let's hit that one first. And this is time too. Um, I think it's really helpful to be bilingual. Um, I kind of wish I was. I used to be um, bilingual in American Sign Language, um, really fluent. And um, I could really, if I needed to, I could probably have a choppy conversation now. Um, and believe it or not, as an OT, that actually did come in handy, especially in pediatrics from time to time. Um, but I would say there's more value. Look at where you are locally and find out what the languages are that people are speaking in that area. It's a lot of people will automatically go to Spanish. Great second language to have because a large percentage of Americans and people living in America speak Spanish. But there also may be, you know, just in where you are, a, a high population of Polish individuals, right? So I think if you're gonna put money into a skill set, that's good money spent, really good. Um, but in terms of just skill development in general, I think it's, I think this is not gonna sound like a skill, but it is really, 
um, learning to fail and be okay with it. Put yourself in risky situations, in situations you see as there's a risk for failure and be okay if you fail with it. Obviously, not dangerous situations. Like, right. let's not have people jumping off roofs here. But, you know, right. speak a language to somebody that you're not fluent in or, you know, learn something that's hard to learn and start to feel okay with whatever you define as failure. And, and because what will happen is you redefine what failure is. Um, what, and, and you will naturally be able to learn that whatever you didn't do right the first time, you do so, so well the second, third or fourth time that it was important that you failed. Um, right. And that's true, you know, and obviously as a student, that's true. Um, and I would love to say that once you get out into the world of actually caring for patients, you never make mistakes, but it just happens. You know, um, you try really hard not to, there's lots of ways to, but things do happen and figuring out what went wrong and how not to make that go wrong again, it's invaluable. Um, so be okay with failure. Um, time management, we kind of hit on it's Believe it or not, once you get out into the world of working, time management feels easier to manage. I think we just are better at it by then. Maybe that's what it is. We've developed that skill set. And then something that you can work on, but this is so hard. How do you work on it if you don't have this? Adaptability. And that's yeah. a silly thing to say because you're either adaptable or you're not. How do I teach somebody who is not a naturally adaptable person to become adaptable? Well, you teach them how to fail. Maybe that's maybe they go together. Yeah, I would, I would say you get them out of their comfort zone as much that's as possible. Same thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's 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 you know kind of um, important. And then there is all sorts of innate skills that people I think who are drawn to healthcare naturally have and will develop naturally: compassion, empathy, um, ability to see more than one perspective. You know, which goes with the flexibility. Um, these kind of soft skills that just naturally develop. Um, it's funny, when I got into PA school, um, my letter was like, hey, welcome to, you know, Kmetiak, uh PA school. Here's some things we suggest you do before you get here because it'll help you. Um, take a speed reading class. I was like, really? Okay, I, I, I took, so I'm like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm going to learn how to speed read, I guess. But, you know, um, they thought that was somehow important because of volume. Maybe it is. I don't know. I think it, it could help. It, I took it. I can't say that I dipped into that skill set that much. It was. It, I think that they probably should have said, take a long vacation <laughs> before you come here asleep. <laughs> right. The basics. Visit your family. You will not see them for 27 months. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that stuff's all, you hit the, the, the nail on the head there. Um, the most people, the people who fail the most are usually the most successful. So I am the best failure in the, on the planet. <laughs> Nobody fails like CL fails. I fail with such flair. It's not even funny. And you know what? I, I wasn't always good at it. I used to stink at it. I used to hide my failures. I'll tell you a quick story the, when I learned how to fail, was um, my first rotation as a PA student. So the second year in PA school, you go on rotations. And the, my first rotation was obstetrics and gynecology. And um, I wasn't particularly comfortable in, in that field. I never saw myself working there, but I had an interest in it. And it was surgery. 
it was actually a lot of surgery. So I was like, yay. Um, and, but I happened to work with um, a completely rigid and inflexible surgeon that his, his prerogative, that was his OR. And I was a brand new student and I was nervous and I was supposed to be using retractors and I was, you know, fumbled and I made some mistakes a lot, you know, on the first day, I mean, must've made a lot of mistakes. I kind of blacked out. I don't remember. I somehow blanked this out, but, but he yelled at me so fiercely. What a loser. Have I ever learned this anywhere? I was like, no, I haven't. I'm here with you to learn this, you know, but I didn't say anything. And my first instinct during that was to do what I had done probably for a good part of my early life is to explain myself, kind of um, not own the failure. Cause what he was saying was right. He was being very mean about it, but I didn't know what I was doing. So my first instinct was like, oh, you know, I'm not really failing, I'm whatever, just, you know, and you should defend yourself, but instead I owned it. Instead, I left there, I cried. The next day I got paired with him again. And when I went in, I said to, I was like, this is, this is one of those things where if you run away from the monster, it gets bigger. But if you face the monster, it gets smaller. I faced the monster. I went up to him and I said, Dr. X, I won't say his name, because he's local and he's still practicing. Dr. X, everything you said yesterday is right. I feel terrible. I want to learn. He actually was like, oh, now he's now, now she's mine. Now, now I'm gonna fix this this wreck. And I'm not suggesting that you should always, you know, fall on the floor and bow and say, I sing. But if you've done so, I did something wrong. I was doing the wrong thing. I was contaminating. I was, I didn't know what I was doing. Find the person who could teach you that and you know, tell them. Um, so that I learned that day, um, the second day I came home and I ordered, I somehow purchased, it was, I didn't order online, I don't think. Um, I ordered a pin that said failure is impossible. And that's been from that point forward has always been my mantra. It's not mine, it's Susan B. Anthony's, but it's not possible to fail because every failure, you know, becomes such an amazing learning experience then I'm totally fine. I'm so good with failure. That's awesome. My comfort zone. <laughs> yeah. I think that's one of the, I think it's a superpower just being able to get out of your comfort zone comfortably. <laughs> it, w it took me a long time. I mean, my first instinct would be, you know, I lose my glasses and I blame somebody else. Where'd you put my glasses? I mean, I clearly did, did this myself, but I want somebody else to take the blame. Um, that would have been me, you know, as a 12 year old. Uh, really, honestly, even as a 20 year old, um, it took me, it took me a couple decades to get there. Um, and I guess that's another good lesson. Don't be afraid of who you were. Um, you know, be good with who you are now and who you're going to become, uh, who I was in the past, probably I can tell you, I wasn't that accepting with failure. Um, and, but now I, I'm, I, for the last several decades, I've been totally fine with it. And it's so liberating. Yeah. I can't fail. There's no way I can fail because when I fail, I figure out how to use that as such an amazing learning experience that it never happens again. And by the way, it does happen again. Obviously, you can fail twice at the same thing. Yeah. I mean, but, that's, that's like, it's weird because it's, so, it's such a fundamental thing that people when they get older, like they, they, they have this like idea in their head that they need back to like just being perfect. Like you have yeah. to be perfect. Everything has to be perfect. Um, 
but like you know that's that's literally how you learn is you mess up you can you know guess and think and use your judgment that's like literally like the basis of learning is to not know what it is you're doing and then someone shows you how can you problem how will you ever learn to problem solve if you never have a problem right like if you if you have not had to study really hard or even if you have and that always articulated into an a that's not necessarily a good thing you know where's the struggle How, when have you ever had to change the way you do something um you need to and there are very few people who fit into the description that i just you know um threw out there i mean most everybody has had a struggle at some point in their lives but um welcome the struggle you know let that struggle be part of your growth development yeah and I, I mean it's like it's like a natural thing humans have where when you like hear a story of someone getting dealt a terrible hand and then coming out the other side like improved from it like those are the, usually the things that people celebrate the most like we have like this natural it's like a built-in in our dna like just mm -hmm. obstacles getting over the obstacle and like we we really admire people that no matter what is placed in front of them they find a way to kind of just keep going you know, I think what you're saying is true, but I worry about this, um, the generation that I guess you're in and like the kids that are just younger than you, because there has been so much attention to, I must be perfect. There is a way, way higher risk in their mind to the struggle. I mean, the struggle, it feels more risky. Um, and I think there's such concern over what people think about the struggle or that somebody's having. Um, and it, it it's preventing some growth, you know? If, if they don't allow themselves to have a struggle or to fail or to have something hard in their life that maybe won't, you know, maybe takes a little bit um, away from their grade, for instance, um, that fear of not reaching perfection, it's really intense in your generation. Yeah. I think everyone, everyone just wants to be perfect. Everyone wants to... Well, it's too much. It is. It's a ridiculous thing to try to shoot for. There is no perfection anywhere. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. to try to shoot, shoot for perfection. And I'm, you know, look at me, sage old lady saying this. Honestly, when I was your age, I would have been like, oh, shut up, old lady. You don't know me and I'm going to be perfect, you know. So um, it's it's kind of, that that's a sad thing about life too. By the time you realize that perfection isn't all it's cracked up to be, you've really uh, tortured yourself trying to be perfect for decades. Yeah. I mean, and it's impossible to be perfect. That's why we have like idols and ideals and stuff. You know, there's always a constant move towards, you know, there's good, there's evil. Like we just, whatever way you want to describe it, there's things you can move towards and improve. You could mm -hmm. fall behind, but then pick yourself back up and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, also, I think my generation, like we're even beyond the I need to be perfect. We're like, the world needs to be perfect. Like, so, God, you are that. so right. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it's exhausting for you guys. You know, like yeah. the whole, that is, you just said such a poignant thing because you're spending so much time, you as a generation, and this is super, anybody who's, you know, I hope nobody's offended by this because I know that there are plenty of people who don't fit within this description, but I think as a generation, not only do you want perfection for you, you want to be perfect, but 
you're looking at, you're, you're coming up with solutions for every imperfection in the world. Why isn't that happening? It's energy draining, energy draining. Um, But flip the script. The cool thing about that is think about all the innovators that'll come out. Yeah. When you, because people, you, you guys are designed to see what's wrong. It's a lot of effort for you, but when you see what's wrong, you want to fix it. That's innovation. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of it's just where the energy is directed. Yeah. A lot of people are, they want the world to be perfect, but like they just think that and they feel it, but they don't like, you know, just thinking and feeling it like nothing's going to change or no yeah. one's going to notice. You have to like put steps into place and like actually think, brainstorm, plan it out, mm-hmm. and then execute on it. And then, like we've been talking about, fail, try again. You know, a lot of people just, are, a lot of my generation, trust me, is just roaming the earth, like just, not, not mad, but like, just like, you know, there's this going on and that going on and like, it's terrible. Disgruntled. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> the disgruntled yeah. generation, this, this, you guys are generation D. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, but even if half a percent of those disgruntled generations put action into, you know, put words into action, that's kind of amazing. I was not part of a disgruntled generation. I was part of a, is my hair curled in the right way, you know, generation? Did, did I put enough hairspray in? And there were, we weren't having visions, you know? Um, so I think that's one of the strengths of you guys, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always been, just me personally, like what's worked for me is I've always been more concerned with what I can do to make my immediate surroundings better rather than like the world because you know you're looking at me i'm looking at you you know to me you're you're a part of my world that i'm perceiving but i know that you're perceiving me so i'm a part of your world so like mm-hmm. i am the world you are the world and if i can change in whatever manner that's that that improves me therefore the world actually improved that's true so i'm 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 more focused on how i can improve myself because when i improve that rubs off on my roommates, that rubs off on my parents, that'll rub off on my children, anyone I work with. And then like those people know people and they know people. And then that's kind of my way of thinking about it isn't to, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, you know, you know, volunteer at your local church or your soup kitchen and, and all that hey. stuff or try to cure cancer. But like hey. that, you know, I think there's a lot of great things that you can do for the world by just changing yourself. I think that's that's the most important thing that you can do is change yourself to be positive. And I mean, it's so simple. Um, I once had a conversation with a student of mine and he said, you know, I noticed when you um, we would get to the lab at the same time uh, every Wednesday. And I, it just seemed like I kept running into this kid. And he goes, I noticed that um, every morning when you get to the store, you have a smile on your face. And I said, yeah, but when I leave my car, I don't always. But I made it. I changed my thought process. I said, by the time I get from my car to this door and I start seeing people, I'm gonna have a smile on my face because I'm, I, what I do will matter to everybody who I encounter. Um, and I said, this is small. He's like, yeah, that I have to say it really is, it's, it's you know, it's nice. Cause you always have a smile on your face. It's not fake. I don't, I'm not faking it. It's just, I know that that small thing is, can be impactful. It's kind of like, you know, I'm changing the world that's right here uh right here i'm changing this world and then maybe that changes the world that that visualizes me um but there are people who feel like their impact is big or they i should say there are people who feel that where they can be most impactful are the big sweeping 
um, gestures, awesome. Let them do it. I I don't think I could. I'm not. I don't think that's my skill set. I think I'm I'm like you, small impact in this world that I live in right here, and yeah. that will have the ripple effect. Right. Look at us, motivation 101. <laughs> Sign up for this course right now. Yeah. Dale and Michael teaching you how to be <laughs> more positive in life and okay with failure. Yeah, I, I just think it's a crucial thing you have to have, you know, especially with how crazy the world can get randomly at times. So, yeah. And, and you don't have any idea when that's going to happen. I mean, proof yeah. positive last several years. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I said this in the last podcast I did, but I, you know, I think a big thing with my generation is like, we just can't, we, we, you know, we grew up in a, I'll say relatively peaceful time period, yeah. of like history. And then like, I don't think anyone expected us to have a pandemic that had the kind of response that it had. And I, I've already said this previously, but just not to you specifically, you know, I personally think we handled it really well. Like I'm surprised the world didn't go up in flames to be honest, but with that, I was still very surprised that. I don't know. We weren't more prepared. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I guess shame on us because there's plenty of people who, who pre not predicted, but could foresee something of this ilk occurring at some point. Right. Yeah. And then there was this kind of preamble, this kind of thing that happened beforehand in other countries that, and, and some of this is, well, that can't happen here. We're the great, fabulous, you know. <laughs> Um, and so part of that was just that, you know, rhetoric, which is garbage, right? But, um, but you're right, it is, but I bet, but, but at the same time, our ability to very quickly respond in the way we did shows that there was some preparedness behind yeah. the scenes of some sort, people, human beings at some level had some skill um, that allowed, you know, uh, a really rapid response and that was a, the better outcome you know in terms of what was expected but i have to say something um what year were you born 2000 okay so i think that you guys one thing that you guys have dealt with more than us not okay you might say that you haven't had to deal with like a lot of what uncertainty or whatever or maybe like war maybe not war but you guys have had to deal with more unexpected things on happening locally um school shootings terrorism i never had to deal with any of that i mean you know yeah. so so your generation has has a little bit of that um I, I i thought i knew what i was doing and then this crazy thing happened and i had to do something else and that's gonna be i think that that's gonna be a huge benefit to you guys have been that allows you to be a little bit more flexible it's it's forced you to be more flexible yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. Crazy stuff's always happening. <laughs> I'm getting away with it. Yeah. It's all over the place. All righty. I do have one more question. We've been going okay. for an hour and a half. You still, uh, you still good to go? Yeah, look at us. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, go ahead. All right. The last question I have um, is, I'm not sure how much insight you have into this, but I'm just curious w what your thoughts are and where do you think Americans' health is heading? You think that, Mm. Um, and I'm, I, you know, the medical field, obviously it's always, it's been rapidly improving and everything like that, but yet I feel like Americans aren't necessarily healthier and we haven't really been getting healthier. So 
what what are your thoughts? Do you think we're heading in a good direction, a bad direction? Mm. It's a great question. I mean, this this question takes a, a really a thoughtful answer because my knee jerk reaction is um, probably different than reality. So I would I have major concerns about um, the direction that America is heading in in terms of health, and that's weird to say because of all the things you just pointed out. Science has, for crying out tears, in a very short period of time, we made a, an effective vaccine against something that seemed like we were never going to tackle. I mean, so clearly science is giving us tools to deal with health issues as they arise. Where we're feel, failing is self-regulation and um, self-accountability. And bigger than, and I maybe even bigger than that, actually, um, access. Um, and they go hand in hand. So um, there is a whole group of people who are making decisions that put their health at risk. And everybody's made bad decisions. You have to make a couple of them. Um, but you can't make it habitual. And 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 one of the things that comes to mind is obesity. It's something that I'm, I think about a lot because I think that I'm scared about the fact that Americans are becoming more obese. But there's so many reasons why. Um, and one of the major, and it's very easy to look at people and go, self-regulate. Don't you know? Don't do this. Here's the facts, though. Larger percentages of underserved populations are obese. Why? Poorer access to healthcare, terrible access to fresh foods. If you can get it, they're the most expensive thing. Very easy access to dollar meals um, and almost no access to the ability to exercise. Um, I'm worried. It worries me a lot, actually. Um, I think that there's, I think that there's going to need to be a huge change to impact this positively for all Americans. People who will be impacted immediately are the ones who already have access to everything. White female. I can find fruits and vegetables right in my backyard. Um, but people who um, have been impacted, you know, the, the um, most negatively in terms of the health trends, uh, are are going. It's going to be a slower recovery for them if if we recover. Um, and and we're, I worry about it honestly. And you want to know something too? Where the the science isn't helping those people. Um, the people who are who are sick because of access problems and health related issues related to obesity. Science doesn't help that. Um, politics and local impactful movements help that you know what i mean it's it's not so much science um it's yeah human beings doing something positive for each other right um so i worry yeah i yeah. have worries i worry a lot actually and every time i go out and i see people looking so unhealthy and as an orthopedic pa oh my gosh oh my gosh Right. You know what is totally expected for a woman of a certain age to be five foot two and 170 pounds? 
you can't, a body can't sustain that, you know, um, um, successfully and healthy over a long period of time. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm really worried. And now that I painted that very grim picture, um, here's the positives. People are aware of it. Yeah. I do think that there's an ability to impact health. Um, it is going to take a whole lot of effort. Again, it's not science and medicine who needs to make these changes, really. It's um, society, you know? And um, it is possible, but it's gonna take a lot of energy. You're gonna be in a great position, actually, uh, as a PT, you'll kind of be a steward of health. Yeah. And you're already in a great position because you are a steward of health now to the people who are around you. And I guess that's part of this make small changes, right? We're both stewards of health to the people around us. And maybe hopefully that'll ripple out a little bit. Right. Oh. Right. I mean, do you worry about access for people? I've been more lately. Yeah. Especially from conversations, just because where I grew up and everything, I, it wasn't something I ever experienced. So Me neither. Right. I mean, I, we, I, I, sh I shouldn't say that. We had food insecurity, but that was nothing like what people have now. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. Like the way my mom grew up, she she's from Cuba and she came here when she was four. Um, and she had a pretty, I, I'll say it was a difficult childhood. Um, it was. And, you know, she tells me all the time, like, you know, she didn't have like this food and this type mm -hmm. of stuff and whatnot. Um, obviously that was years ago, but it's definitely, there's still, that's still happening a hundred percent. And, you know, I, you're probably familiar with the food, like a food desert. And, oh yeah, yeah, they, they, yeah. Waterbury is a food desert. Uh, oh really? Hartford's a food desert. Parts of New Haven are. I mean, not all of them, right? Because there are some things. But if you live in a certain uh, neighborhood in an urban center, you can get you know two Milky Ways for a dollar, or two off-brand Milky Ways for a dollar, you know, or tomatoes one, once in a while that have been sitting around and rotten for four bucks. What are you going to get? Right. Of course, you're going to get the, you know, I mean, who yeah. wouldn't? That's human nature. So yeah, food deserts. They're not deserts, right? They're they're cities. Yeah, it's it's ironic because the food okay. deserts are usually in the most populous type so crazy. spaces. Um, so crazy. Yeah, I mean, I I guess the main worry for me is like I. It's just fascinating to me that like the majority of things that healthcare is uh, solving. I, I guess you could say they're like preventable preventable through your own actions it's it's the result no of question. i don't no. want to say your own actions because obviously there are situations where you have to make a decision and the cheaper one the one that's going to you know financially make the most sense you know is an unhealthier one but mm -hmm. um you know a lot of the things that medicine is trying to tackle are things that are due to our actions and decisions our lifestyles rather than bad luck and a virus going around in the air or something like that. So it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what I, that's what you're saying is what I started my answer with saying, like it's it, these things where you, where people have made decisions that have impacted their health negatively. And that made it seem like it kind of made it, when, once it got out of my mouth, I was like, ooh, that seems like I'm placing blame. And I'm not, I'm, I mean, somebody's to blame. We're kind of all to blame, but but people, like you said, are in tough decision, tough situations, and they do what they can. Um, um, but, but you're totally right. The biggest health 
issue right now is obesity. I mean, you didn't say that. I'm putting words in your mouth, but but it is, and that is some a lifestyle thing. That right? That is a decision that I, I'm sorry for people who do believe that they are genetically predestined to be heavy, or that they have, you know, and that is a very small minority, uh, very uber small. Right. Um, most folks who are unhealthy related to to their weight are unhealthy because too many calories, not enough, you know, um, energy spent. Um, it's really just a, a very easy equation. And it's easy equation for me to say, because I can choose my, I am in a financial and local position to choose what my calories are. Lucky me. And I also have a schedule, a work schedule and a care schedule for my family that allows me to work out. But if I was a single, you know, um, Hispanic m m parent in Waterbury working two jobs, I wouldn't have maybe either of those things. So it's not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not judging. I'm just saying this is big. This is a social issue. This isn't a health issue. I mean, it is obviously, but it stems yeah. from the social issue underneath it. Um, maybe it's just education too, because people in any situation can make good decisions um, that lead them to a healthier lifestyle. Um, but I don't know what it's like to be the people who just who decide to get the two Milky Ways because you get more free money that way. I don't know. Right. I can't pretend to know. Big. It's huge. Thank yeah. you. know, some really cool things are happening. Obviously, there's a lot of like urban um, gardens and stuff like that, and that's all very very cool. There's a, a an amazing woman, Dorothy, um, in New Haven, who does urban gardening. In fact, the big event. Um, some QU students, and I happened to be with them, uh, worked with her and the, um, the organization was cleaning up a park and then also making these raised gardens. Very, very cool. Small. This is one of those small things, right? But impactful within her little place, uh, her little, you know, whatever, three blocks, she was making an impact. So, uh, you know, we can change it. Yeah. I do think there are a good amount of Americans who do have access to better food choices though. And there still are no question just making bad. A hundred percent. I totally agree yeah. with you. I just want to be clear that I'm not just, right. I, there are people, I, I, you're right. I mean, you know, there's God so many, you know, who could clearly do better. Yeah. Um, and who knows why they're making decisions too, right? Multifaceted. Yes. Right? Looking for happiness. Who knows? Right. Yeah. I agree. And, and maybe for all we know, that's the majority. I don't actually really know. But what I wanted to make sure I was conveying is a compassion towards those whose health suffers. And it's really out of their hands right. because they're making the best decisions they can, you know? Yeah, you got to be careful yeah. what you say these days. <laughs> I just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And oh, I really yeah. appreciate how hard it is to do right by your family yourself and you know and then make the decisions that you know um but no what you're saying is probably true It'd be really interesting to see yeah you know the, everything's it's more complex you know it's not just that people need to purchase better foods like some people yes they just need to do that and then there's other it, people yeah. that have other stuff going on and whatnot yeah. so whenever we have a discussion like this you usually have to touch on all the different uh groups of people that come into play um yeah, but yeah you know i've i've got i've once i've gotten in trouble but you know I've said things like, you know, there's been movements like, like fat acceptance and like 
like dad bods were a trend. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard of that, like the yeah, dad bod. Yeah. And I, like, I, I hated, girls, pers- I <laughs> personally, I hated the dad bod trend. I thought that was stupid because, yeah. I mean, this isn't for everyone, but generally the lifestyle that results in a dad bod isn't a healthy one. So yeah. I didn't like that that was being promoted. And people had, people, someone got upset with me that I was, that I said that I didn't think dad bods were like something that should be like this big, like fad celebrated thing. Yeah. Um, and some people got upset. It's like, you well, just gotta be careful. You do have to be careful, <laughs> but I think that there has to be respect for individual opinion. I mean, right, yeah. let's, not, let's not quilch our individual opinion just so that we don't always hurt other people's feelings. What you're saying is, is true you know that there could it's not necessarily the healthiest um thing to promote you know right um you're not you know and that and that you know is your feeling i don't think that you should have to defend it you know i really don't um just like they shouldn't have to defend their body everybody can have their own feelings it's totally great um it's very hard it is your you know you take a risk posting things you do and we all do right i don't post i don't do anything anything this will be the first thing ever i think that's out in the universe with me on it but when people do put themselves out there with their opinions it's risky doesn't mean they're not valuable you should and they're yours own them you know yeah it's definitely something i've been very aware of is really looking at what it is i'm saying before i put it out there for the world to kind of see it and usually like all usually what i'm saying comes from a really good place but sometimes it's just the execution of it that it can be like you know what let me just retype this out let me just rephrase this a little bit just so i don't sound like i'm saying something i don't mean but can you imagine what it's like for a celebrity and they cannot everything is rehearsed right? right they they can't just spew stuff because and then if they try to explain it nobody buys it like that, that that's it whatever <laughs> he said first that's the thing you know so thank god we're not famous yeah unless this gets unless this blows up then we could be famous now i don't know who knows possible it is possible it's, the youtube algorithm is weird my uh <laughs> my video about me breaking my heels had like a couple thousand views for like the first six months it was out and uh, then just randomly one day it got like twenty thousand, and then the next day fifty thousand, and then the next day fifty thousand. Oh, it just like randomly like youtube just saw it and must have been like yeah this video is good to go we'll just start recommending it to people because it was you know it was hovering around like i think it was like five thousand views and which it, is even amazing to me it's like yeah. how do five thousand people find that and watch and like that's pretty amazing to me yeah, I think it's just the topic, broken heel bones. Anyone who breaks their heel will Google that and find it. Yeah. So it's it, every day it gets, you know, a little bit around 10 views just in like at the minimum. So um, remarkable. But yeah, YouTube just randomly started recommending it. So it's just kind of random. Like some videos just YouTube gets them out there for some reason. So. All right. Well, we might get recommended. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, that'd be crazy. <laughs> but yeah, with that, that's that's all the questions I had had for you. I think we did pretty well here. We covered some good stuff. Yeah, that was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed that. Well, we'll have to do it again sometime. I'd love to because I, I've i done one of these before. You were my second guest. I have no clue who else to ask to come on to here and talk. So <laughs> <laughs> I have to do some, brain, some major brainstorming hey, to find more guests. Well, thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on here and talk. Um, I hope my pleasure, those really. listening at home 
got something out of it. I think they definitely will. Um, and yeah, that's that's gonna be it. I'm gonna stop this here. Um, thank you guys for watching, and stay tuned for the next one.